Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to Episode 17 of The Pennsylvania Project. As you may know, here at The Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. And to achieve that vision, our mission is to boldly showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing contemporary Pennsylvania, and to relentlessly pursue correct solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. Ask not for a more worthy antimetaboly than that. We have a very vague episode planned for you today, maybe. And like all episodes of the Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we are an email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com. And you can always listen in afterwards on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, or whatever your favorite podcast provider might be. Today for the you part, we have a mix of new questions. We're going to talk about medical insurance again, casinos, free education again, and there's going to be more if there's time, and sometimes there's not. But after that, part two is all about them. Each episode, we host a guest to help showcase the political, cultural, and environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. And our guest today is another real nobody, literally. Our guest is running late, and given the traffic out there in the Shorekill Distress Way, we may have to reschedule our guest. Let's hope not. There's still another 10, 15 minutes to go. But if our guest bails out on us, hey, I'm a Toastmaster. I can always think of something. I got something in my back pocket that we can chat about. But guest or no guest, after that comes part three of the Pennsylvania Project, the me part, where it's my turn, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on a particular issue that really sticks in my craw, pun intended. And today's rant, fascism in Pennsylvania. Sounds ominous. And throughout the show, we'll be featuring a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to narrate our live commercials and whatever comes into our mailbag. Today, we have with us a member of the Drexel University Toastmasters, Eric Skoglund. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Eric. Thank you. Good to be here, Ken. Yeah, it's good to have you. So you've been a Toastmaster for a while. What do you like about being a Toastmaster? So what I love about being a Toastmaster is being able to field questions. A lot of being a Toastmaster is I'll be given examples, I'll be questions, and I'll have to answer them right on the spot. And I love the ability to ad-lib everything I want to do. Yeah, and here you are on live radio. That's pretty cool. Exactly. You're trained for it. That's why I keep a steady stream of Toastmasters here. All right, let's dig right into that mailbag. And remember, our mission is not to complain, but also to explore solutions. What do we got, Eric? Our first question is from Synonymous HBO Freeze, all the way from Tolcingo de Valle Pueblo, Mexico. Mexico, okay. yeah. I don't like the penalty for not having a medical insurance. <laughs> well, hey, neither do I. I guess apparently you don't need to be from Pennsylvania to oppose the, pe the penalty. Lucky for us, it was repealed in America. HBO, nice name. Unless he meant there's a Mexican penalty, I'm not really sure. Regardless, this isn't so much a Pennsylvania issue as it's a, f a federal one. And doesn't it make you sick what the feds are doing when it comes to the medical insurance? But fortunately, there's a Pennsylvania-only solution. I've talked about this one before. It's, a, it's an alternative to the government-manufactured health care crisis. They're called health share organizations. I talked about, about them a lot at the beginning of, I think it was episode 9 and there's not much I can add to that, but let me just recap briefly. Uh, they're not insurance. It's rather a voluntary group of individuals who pool their resources to pay for each other's medical expenses. Pretty cool. They don't have premiums. It's not insurance. But what they do instead is they have monthly contributions to cover their fair share of everybody else's expenses. 
And the best part, the typical fair share cost for a member is a fraction the cost of regular medical insurance. I looked into it, it's about 20, 25% the cost of regular insurance. What a deal. 20% cost of an Obamacare policy. Personally, I love health share, health share organizations. They're very, very libertarian. Libert- libertarians like to take responsibility, and with health shares, they take responsibility not only for themselves, but their fellow citizens. And one thing, I think I mentioned it before, some health share organizations are not allowed to operate in Pennsylvania. I'm not really sure. I actually called one, Liberty Health Share, and I, I didn't get a good answer. It's all pretty vague to me why they can't do it. I told you it was going to be a vague episode. I just wonder, why, why don't they just let peaceful people be? Hmm, good question. Beats me. So next question is from James McLean in Pocono, Pennsylvania. Out of curiosity, what do you think about building a casino near Gettysburg? Now that <laughs> is quite an interesting question. Well, simple answer, I don't think about it. I'm not a casino person. I don't frequent casinos. I'm not in the casino business. I'm not a builder. Although I have been to Gettysburg, and it's a real pretty part of the state. The Appalachian Trail goes just to the west of it, and I've been on that several times on a nearby mountain ridge. I don't think about casinos, but I do think about casinos in another area. I think it's an area where the government has absolutely no business, like the medical insurance. The government's got no business in the medical insurance. Because you know what, how, what it's like. Once you get government involved, it always turns into a squabble among special interests, all squealing to who gets to use your hard-earned money for their pet projects or maybe some sweet deal or something. Or worse yet, use the power of government to hold down the competition. It's a little bit much for me. Again, that gets pretty vague, why the state is involved at all. Nowhere is gambling mentioned in the Pennsylvania Constitution. And I keep it right here at my elbow. It never goes far. They say it comes under the police powers. I looked that one up. And that's always the excuse they use to meddle in the free market or meddle in your personal life or to kick down your door. Whether it's zoning laws, restaurant inspections, all the various bathroom bills that we were talking about before the show started. All those things are all rooted in the police power. But, you know, what does that mean? What is police power? I looked up that one, too. And legally speaking, uh, the police power draws on two principles. First one is, use that which is yours so as not to injure others. That sounds pretty libertarian to me. Your life, your way, provided you respect the rights and property of others. I'm not going to tell you what the Latin is. There's no point. I mean, I studied Latin, but I don't know how many people have these days. But that's the first principle. The second one is, the welfare of the people shall be the supreme law. And hey, that's libertarian too. Your life, your way, as long as you respect others. But then I wonder, how did we get from your life, your way, to you need the state's permission to build a casino? I don't know. It's vague again, because like the state's interference in the health insurance market, all the reasons get vague. The police power is like that. It's vague. It's not well-defined. It's not a good thing to have in a law, making it vague. But I, I digress. Pardon me. Getting back to the question, what do I think about anyone building a casino anywhere? I think it's none of the government's business. Nothing vague about that answer. Next question. Here's another one from Bernie McCain. In Ellsworth City, Pennsylvania, what do you think about free education for university students? Now, that is especially relevant to someone like me, even though I graduated. That's right. You just graduated from Drexel. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, Bernie, what do I think about free education for university students? I think you should listen to episode eight, because that's where I went into detail of everything I think about free education. But it's an easy one to summarize. 
there ain't no such thing as a free education. Somebody somewhere has to pay for the teachers. They have to pay for the buildings. They have to maintain the buildings, pay for the school books, the software. Question becomes, who? Bernie, this is another case of solving the problem correctly, the problem of who pays for education, which is what you're trying to solve, instead of solving the correct problem. And the correct problem is, how do we educate our kids? You're already assuming something about the answer. The solution I pointed out in episode eight was that rather than kids paying for their education, they should be paid to get educated. And the way that I mentioned to do that, the best way to do that is with apprentice programs. And the best example I got is my dad. He was a tool and die craftsman who made jet engine parts for a living. Pretty cool. But if you want to learn that skill today, you'd rack up a six-figure student debt. But my father, he didn't do that. He took a job as an apprentice at the Bud Company in Philadelphia, and they taught him his trade. And while he was learning, the company paid him. See, that's the way it should be. You know, there's a great teen sci-fi novel that tells a story about this. It's called Higher Education by Charles Sheffield and Jerry Pornell. And I really like Jerry Pornell. It's all about a spaceship company in the near future. They can't find enough kids with the basic math and reading skills to fill the positions they're trying to fill. So you know what they do? They create the kids as experts themselves. They teach them how to teach them the math, teach them the mechanics, teach them how to fly a spaceship all from scratch. And they get the, the kind of workers that they need. So that's a good solution, the apprentice program. So Bernie, go do your homework. For your homework, go back and listen to the you part of episode eight where I talk about it. And then go read Higher Education by Sheffield and Pornell. It's an education. So the last question is from Mark Nelson. Would Ken be willing to issue a strong statement condemning fascism? <laughs> Would <Ooh>. I? <laughs> Would I? Good grief. You know, I, I started gathering my thoughts on this one when the question came in. And I realized it's a much larger issue. Because, yeah, I could make a statement and say, oh, I, I don't like fascism. You know, it's, that's an easy thing to say. Because, it, you know, fascism really sticks in my craw. That's what I was thinking. So that's why I'm going to save this answer for the me part of the show. Because fascism in Pennsylvania, which is what it's about, it really sticks in my craw. On that foreboding, foreshadowing note, let's wrap up the you portion of the show. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, we'll be talking with today's guest who is still missing in action, sorry to say, and who has exactly two minutes to show up before I have to shift to a plan B. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, caster for the Pennsylvania Project. 
You know, it's easy to find a high-paying job. At least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do those words describe you? Competent leader? Communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, you may want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Hey, look at me. I joined Toastmasters and now I have my own radio podcast. So turn your life around like I have. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact a club near you. Visitors are always welcome and be sure to mention my name. The future is anxiously awaiting competent, competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the then portion of Episode 17 of the Pennsylvania Project, where we host a guest to help showcase the political, cultural, and environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. My guest today looks like it's going to be the same one we hosted on Episode 9, a real nobody, literally, because it is time, but our guest has not made it here in time. So we're going to drop to our plan B, and that's going to mean it's going to be left up to me. So I'd like to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and something that I can talk about to the drop of a hat or the drop of a guest. So don't drop your hat. I always like to segue off the topics presented by our guests, but without the guest, without the topic, I'm going to segue off the topic from one of our commercials, the first one you just heard. Specifically, I want to talk about the theme of the novel Atlas Snubbed. Specifically, I want to talk about the separation of society and state that was mentioned in the commercial. It all starts with a sad truism. Taxes are too high. The reason why taxes are so high is because spending is too high. In fact, the cost of government in Pennsylvania has been growing at more than three times the rate of inflation on average for over 50 years. In 1964, the state took in about $100 per citizen, but today it's grown to over $2,500 per citizen. It doesn't matter if the state is being run by Democrats or Republicans. It doesn't matter if we have lower inflation like we have today or runaway inflation like we had during the Carter years. In either case, government spending in Pennsylvania continues to rise at an alarming, unsustainable rate for over 50 years. Incredible. Taxes are high because spending is high. And the reason why spending is so high is because the state has taken on too many tasks that properly properly belong to us as a society when it comes to the responsibility. Things such as welfare, unemployment compensation, education, health insurance, county fairs, job programs, libraries, game lands, public transportation, policing, business regulations, and numerous other functions which are mostly not mentioned in the Pennsylvania Constitution. In fact, the state has taken on so many societal functions that today over 80% of the Pennsylvania state budget is dedicated to social giveaway programs. Well, the inevitable result has been higher taxes, higher spending, and less and less money remaining in the wallets and pockets of those who earned it. Two-income families are now the overwhelming norm, and still the spending grows and the taxes along with it. Galloping along, as I said, more than three times the rate of inflation on average for over 50 years. That's a long time. It's obvious. If this trend continues, it's going to bankrupt us all. And that's what was mentioned in the commercial. I like to quote Margaret Thatcher. She had a famous quote. 
The problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. That's what's happening here in Pennsylvania. But what can we do? You know, we're big here on solutions at the Pennsylvania Project. A lot of these social services, probably most of them, are crucial to our way of life. And a lot of Pennsylvanians have come to depend upon them, especially the elderly and the needy. You can't just simply abolish these programs outright. That would be a cure worse than the disease, you know? Hmm. Well, we are all about solutions. And the solution to the runaway spending of all these programs is, as I warned, the separation of society and state. All these well-meaning, tax-funded societal programs must be separated from state control and transitioned back to society where they originally were and where they truly belong. But what does that mean, transition to society? Sounds weird. Well, it means that if these giveaway programs are to be administered effectively without state control, there obviously must be some agency to administer them. Let's call it, I don't know, in a fit of originality, let's call it society, right? An agency. We'll create an agency called society. Let's start by doing what we do with the country, with the state. We'll start with a written constitution. Yeah, and we'll start with the constitution we have now. Let's say the federal constitution. So it would look just like government we have today. Look that way at the federal, state, local levels. For example, at the federal level, there would be a president of society with all the senators and representatives come with it. State level, you'd have a governor of society with the state society senators and representatives. At the local level, there'd be a mayor of society, a society's town council, all those things at each one of those levels. And they'd all operate pretty much the same as their governmental counterparts, except for one key item. Society would not possess the coercive power of taxation, or any coercive powers at all for that matter. No coercion. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means a federal society could vote to establish a, a social security program, but could not garnish your wages to contribute to it. A state society could run the schools, but they can't tax your property to pay for it. A local society could install handicapped sidewalk ramps at all the street corners, but they could not levy an earned income tax to buy the cement for it. In all cases, the respective societies would need to raise the necessary funding by means of voluntary contributions. Society couldn't tap in that bottomless pit of our wallets, citizens' hard-earned money, through using coercive taxation. Instead, society would need to hold fund drives, bake sales, telethons, all sorts of things like that to raise revenue. And if there's not enough contributions to fund their grand schemes, then society would have to do what you and I have to do all the time when we run low on money. You have to prioritize your spending. Or take a second job, or maybe run another telethon or something like that. So instead of confiscating citizens' wealth, there'd be more cajoling instead of confiscating. It's a very important philosophical point. Society shouldn't have the coercive power of taxation. Because you know, look at it logically. They can't have the power of taxation. Let me run you through a little thought experiment. <clears throat> Let me call it a thought experiment here. If I took your wallet from you without your permission, I'd be a thief, Right? If everybody in this room voted to take your wallet without your permission, well, we'd all be thieves. But somehow, when it's the city or the state or the country who's taking your money with, without your permission, it became okay. What happened? I don't know. I thought governments only had the powers that we the people grant to them. 
We delegate on our authority. But we the people don't have the right to steal your wallet. So we don't have it. We can't give it to society. Cut me a break. So society would have to fund all of its good works voluntarily. Isn't that interesting? How would that work? How would it help improve life? That's, that's what our goal is here. Our vision is a better Pennsylvania, remember. And you know what? Let's take a short break at this point. And when we return, we can go to a whole bunch of examples. I was hoping my guest would show up, but my guest today is still nobody. I'm still your caster, Ken Crawtruck. And you're still listening to The Pennsylvania Project, and there's still nobody here. And we'll be right back after this information. Thinking about getting your first tattoo? Maybe you're ready to add to that sleeve you started or cover up that one regretful choice? Put Sam C. and his team of artists at Iron Will Tattoo Club in Glenside, PA at the top of your list. The team at Iron Will has plenty of designs to choose from, and they can create an original design or work with a design that you provide. Call 267-893-7625 today to schedule your free consultation. That's 267-8-WE-ROCK, or visit them on Instagram at Iron Will Tattoo Club. Are you a small business owner? Always looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra 5 to 10 customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenworley.com. That's Stephen with a V. W-E-R-L-E-Y dot com. Do you have the financial freedom that you imagined you would have? At AJ Freedom Financial, you're dedicated to serving you while helping you achieve your financial goals. We offer planning and investment advice on everything from college and retirement planning to a rollover 401k. Please call 866-383-6899 to learn more. The top priority at AJ Freedom Financial has always been, always will be our clients. 866-383-6899. Call AJ Freedom Financial today to talk to a qualified professional. 866-383-6899. That's 866-383-6899. AJ Freedom Financial, helping Pennsylvanians achieve financial freedom from the man. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Gradient Securities, LLC member, FINRA slash SIPC. Insurance products and services are offered through AJ Freedom Financial. AJ Freedom Financial is not affiliated with Gradient Securities, LLC. The Green Party of Pennsylvania are grassroots activists, environmentalists, advocates for social justice, nonviolent resistors, and regular citizens who have had enough of corporate-dominated politics. Their, goal, their goals are to promote green values by organizing communities, guiding legislation, providing viable new political options, and making government more participatory for all peoples. For more detail, 
Contact the Green Party at Pennsylvania at 717-839-2395 or locate them online at gpofpa.org. Thank you very much, Eric. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and we're back with Episode 17 of the Pennsylvania Project without our guest. I guess we're going to have to run the rest of the show without it, but that's okay because I have more to say about the separation of society and state. Before the break, we talked about the need for it and the creation of a new organization called Society and how it would take over societal functions currently addressed by the government. But most importantly, how society would do it 100% voluntarily. And it would have to because society cannot have the course of power of taxation. Can't. Power is not ours to give. Where would it get it? Makes you wonder where our current government got the power to reach into our wallets. Taking away the power to tax from society is absolutely crucial. It's critical. Because it would mean they'd have to fall back on their own resources and have all kinds of fallout from that too. For example, it would put an automatic governor, pardon the pun, on runaway spending. Because think about it. If a program is important enough, like hurricane relief, people would gladly contribute. I heard that was one of the problems the Red Cross had after the various hurricanes. They had more money than what they could possibly use. And wound up stacking up, and they had extra tarps and everything, and then some people started criticizing them because they didn't distribute the tarps fast enough and everything like that. But that's one of the good parts about having an organized society capital S society, an organized group like society, because they would be practiced at handling emergencies like this, kind of like FEMA would do, except it would be voluntarily funded. Pretty cool. Society would also help seniors getting financed through their golden years, drug programs like Pennsylvania has the drug programs that they have, the PACE program, where they supply seniors with drugs, pay for it. Society would be able to do that. Whatever that need would be, Society would become the rallying point for all the caring people of the state to get together. I can see somebody like Sally Struthers running for national president. You know, these people who really, really care about the community running for governor of society of Pennsylvania. A lot of the local people, I know a lot of local caring people who would do the same thing. They jump at the chance to help. People jump at the chance to contribute. But you know, if a program is counterproductive, like if some kind of a a junket for society's Congress or something like that. First of all, it's unlikely that kind of a measure would pass. And even if it did pass, it'd be really, really difficult to get the funding for that because people just wouldn't vote for it. They're like, hey, you know, we're society. We're here to help people, not to, not to line your pockets. So only the most important programs would continue. All that pork barrel stuff would end. And as we transfer program after program from the state over to society if it's a bad program nobody's going to fund it bad programs that automatically fall by the wayside the good programs would stay and they'd be funded things like the social safety net that would remain intact because that's important you don't want people falling through the net but politics as usual no to be gone no more this glad handing of your taxpayer dollars no walking around money stuff like that all that runaway spending and taxing been going on for over 50 years would finally be reversed because as we got each program out of government and into society we could reduce taxes reduce the size of government reduce the intrusiveness in our lives that's pretty cool spending would drop taxes would drop you have more money in your pocket to help fund what you think 
is important, not what some politician thinks or what some special interest thinks. And that's the way that the needs of society would be met, one after the other. Now, when I brought this question up for people say, yeah, what if nobody contributes? What if society is left high and dry? Well, let me tell you, I think society, I think people would contribute to society because Americans, generally speaking, are one of the most caring, charitable, giving people on the planet. I took, a, I looked it up. Last year, Americans combined contributed almost half a trillion, trillion with a T, dollars to charitable causes. That's a lot of money. You know, figure, what's the Pennsylvania budget? It's about 80, 80 billion, counting the, counting the federal money that they give us. So if you divide that, divide that half trillion dollars among 50 states, that's enough money for Pennsylvania. A little bit left over, too. Pretty cool. Another thing people raise is, oh, people aren't, some people aren't going to contribute. Yeah, you'll get the money, but a lot of people are going to be taking a free ride. They're not going to contribute. And I say, yeah, that's true. So how many are not, aren't going to contribute? One out of 10? One out of 100? I don't care what the number is because, you know, it's going to be pretty consistent. And society is going to be able to base their budget on what they know people are going to contribute. If they say, all right, one out of 10 is going to do an average of $100, then that's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to base their budgets on. It's going to help people as best they could. And again, if there's not enough money, then they can either tighten their belt, hold another telethon or something like that, go for the corporate sponsors. Corporations are always willing to do stuff like that. I heard Microsoft just donated a billion dollars to the artificial intelligence study. Happens all the time. McDonald's has the Ronald McDonald House down the shore in New Jersey. Sorry, not Pennsylvania, but that's okay. Helping all sorts of children who need it. That's great. They do this all the time. Society would be that single organization to channel all this to make sure that everybody gets helped and nobody falls through the net. But, you know, society isn't just about caring for people because you could broaden that. Because not only can they administer all these worthy programs that we picked up from, from the state, they could also do another valuable societal function that the state looks over, and that's setting standards for the conduct of business. doesn't sound intuitive, but that's another area. The government has no right to start telling you how to run your business, but it happens left and right. But some of these things we do need. You know, for example, cleanliness of restaurants, we would do that, banking re regulations, environmental standards, so many things that the government has put its nose into. But all of these things could be moved over to society. Building codes, marriages, adoptions, accounting standards, healthcare professional accreditation, hairdressers, daycare centers. Uh, yeah, the, the list is endless. These are people where the government is like poking their nose in. Uh, there's one, one really crazy example where if you're a hair braider, you have to get a beauty salon license. You have to learn how to handle chemicals and stuff like that. Well, you never handle chemicals at all. It's insane. So what we do is we take all those things out of government, the mandatory rules out of government, and we take the regulatory responsibility for them and give it to society. And, of course, there'd be that one fundamental difference between society and the state's since society has no coercive powers, all those regulations would be voluntary. Voluntary. Now, and that's another one people say, oh, come on, Ken. Voluntary regulations, how would that work? Well, it's simple. If a business meets society's requirements, they could advertise the fact. If they don't, they can't, at least not without committing fraud, and then they're criminals and we throw them in jail, you know? 
And that way the consumers can decide for themselves whether they want to patronize a given business or not. You know, they could just say, oh, this was when they got their restaurant inspected according to society's rules. I like that one. And this other one, oh, it didn't. Oh, but they look and they say the only thing that it didn't pass is that it's serving raw sushi. And society says, don't serve raw sushi because somebody thinks you're going to get sick from it. Yeah, but I think raw sushi is just fine. Or the, oh, that warning about undercooked meat, that could be something outside of society's rules. So you could still get your sushi, even though society may say no. What that would do, that would give us a broader, broader range of options, not just in restaurants, but with businesses, with banking. You may, may want to go to a bank that practices fractional reserve banking, where they don't have enough money to pay everybody off. Or maybe you think fractional reserve banking is the worst thing in the world, best thing in the world. You want to go to a bank that practices it or doesn't practice it. It's up to you. What this does, as I said, it's going to broaden the options open to people, and you're going to spend less and less time arguing with the government. You, know, you look at things like handicapped access. A lot of businesses, if they don't have handicapped access, handicapped people aren't going to go there. Well-meaning people are going to say, I'm not going to go there because they don't have handicapped ramps. How dare they be so cruel to the handicapped people? So now the free market is going to decide, not some bureaucrat, not some special interest, not some payola on the side. Not that that ever happens. Never happened, would it? No. But that'd be the fundamental difference. Voluntary regulations. They'd be much better. You get a wider variety of choices. And this one, this one surprised me. They'd be cheaper. The Cato Institute in Washington did a study and they found that if you have non-governmental regulations, optional regulations, it drastically reduces the compliance costs. Interesting, huh? So it's cheaper to be more voluntary like that. Encourages innovation, shrinks the government, saves money. Good grief, what more do you want? The key benefit of all these voluntary regulations is that we continue to protect the consumer while allowing for the development of new approaches to be introduced without going through that crazy governmental lengthy process of getting things approved and all the codes and everything like that. Everybody would be better off. All sorts of people would be better off. Like think about alternative medicine. There's one. Oh, sorry, you can't take that. You can't use that for, uh, can't use aspirin for uh, foot pain because it's not approved for foot pain. You know? Hair braiders already mentioned eBay sellers, I hear they want them to have auctioneer's licenses. Cut me a break. Teachers, I know a lot about information technology. I could be a teacher, but oops, I'm not certified. But in a society with a society running it instead of a state running it, I could do that. Uh, tattoo art artists, we got Will in our tattoo commercial earlier. He would have a freer hand for doing things, pardon the pun. Paralegals, oh man, I talked about that last episode. You get thrown in jail for that kind of stuff. And I got more to say about that. Advertisers, real estate people. You know, real estate people can't use certain words in their advertising. Cut me a break. Babysitters, I don't know. So many people would benefit from getting government out of the business regulation business. And as I said, it would be cheaper. We got to establish society. There's no reason why we can't do it today. People can start running for offices in societies, different, you know, as governor of society, state house of society. Do it today. 
And then program after program, we can transition out of the state into society. Each transfer, be a reduction in the cost of government and reduction in taxes. You know, we could phase out the Pennsylvania personal income tax. Wouldn't that be cool? Phase out our corporate tax, which is one of the highest in the nation. And we could stop that inexorable growth of the welfare state. Nothing else. There's no other approach. You know, Pennsylvania Project, we're all about solutions. And there's no other solution to stop that crushing burden of overregulation. Because the only other solutions I've heard, they all just nibble around the edges of the problem. You know, they put caps on or something like that. But it doesn't address the underlying issue. The issue is the state has no right and no constitutional right in most cases to say anything about this, even under their vague police power. So the time has come for the separation of society and state, I say. The alternative is to do nothing and continue our march toward bankruptcy at three times the rate of inflation on average again. If you'd like to learn more about how society would work, how it would be used to help the needy, how to keep businesses honest, how it would regulate commerce voluntarily, run the courts, defend the town, All this and more is in that novel, Atlas Snubbed, which was mentioned in the opening commercial. It's a parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, and it's not necessary to read her book in order to enjoy and understand Atlas Snubbed. And that's a good thing, too, because Atlas Shrugged is, what, 1,100 pages or something like that? Atlas Snubbed is a lot more innocent. It's only about three, 400 pages. It stands alone on its own strength, although if you're into the parody, it's a lot richer if you've read Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's book, which is one of my favorite novels, by the way. And it's not a ha-ha parody. It's more of a hmm parody. It's filled with political solutions. It's interesting. If you have read Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Snubbed begins at the exact moment where Atlas Shrugged ends. And like Atlas Shrugged, it's set in a fictional 1950s where global socialism is prevalent and it's destroying the United States. It's an apocalyptic tale of the bloody collapse of Iran's United States. Pretty cool. If you like apocalyptic novels, it's good. Only a handful of American cities survive, and that's what the book is about, the different altercations between them. And each of these cities, they represent a different philosophical archetype. So one of them is a constitutional republic, another one's a religious dictatorship, another one is a bunch of you know, insiders that get together and they rule with an iron fist, that kind of deal. But one of them is that brand new concept, rules by the separation of society and state. The whole town is run under the libertarian principle that you have the right to live your life your way without interference, provided you respect the rights and property of others. That's what it is. And, of course, it's the winner. And it overcomes all the sorts of problems that face the, our hero in the town and a lot of the problems which face modern-day Pennsylvania and America. And the best part about the book, the hero gets the girl in the end. There's another thing that it covers too, which is pretty radical. And I mentioned briefly the courts. Because if you have the right to live your life your way without interference, provided only respect the rights and property of others, how do the courts work? Well, first of all, you can't be ordered into jury duty, right? Because nobody has the right to order somebody else to do something. So juries become volunteer. And the judge, well, the judge can't say you're going to jail because the judge doesn't have the power to tell anybody to go to jail. So the judge acts more like a referee, and it's the jury who does most of the questioning because they want to understand what's going on. 
And eventually, the jury's going to come to a verdict, guilty or not guilty, based upon the evidence. And it's not going to be any of these crazy things. And I talked about this in episode 16 about voir dire and how they stack the jury in front of the jury's eyes and everything like that. None of that nonsense goes on. They pick the jury randomly out of the audience. Every 10th person, get up, come up to the jury box, let's go. And, of course, that means the courts are well attended because the people want to make sure that justice is done. And some of them are there to try and influence the courts, try and get their friends off, something like that. In fact, that actually happens in the book. One guy stacks the jury with his friends, and even though he's guilty as all hell, they find him not guilty. And, of course, attendance at all the courtroom scenes go up dramatically after that because people aren't going to let that happen again. But the key part of the courts, since they have no power to force you to do something, sentences are voluntary. You choose to accept the sentence or not. So that means if you get sentenced to, I don't know, a year in prison or exile or whatever it is, you as the person found guilty, you could say, I accept that sentence or I don't. Of course, if you accept it, that settles that. You go off, you're in exile, you go to jail, you do recompense or whatever whatever the answer is, whatever the sentence is. But if you say no, I don't want your sentence, I don't care, you have no right to try me, and you walk out the door, what you have done is you've just demonstrated by your actions that you are not part of the judicial system of the town. And since you're not part of it, it's your choice, you have chosen not to be part of it, then you can't call upon it if you are wronged somehow. So one thing that happens in the book, this one guy early on, one of the first trials, He says, screw you. I ain't going to listen to you. I'm out of here. And he walks out the door, heads over to the bar, has a beer. All his friends are slapping him on the back saying, yeah, you told him. You told him. But when he gets home, his apartment's been ransacked. His stereo's gone. All his stuff is gone. His money's gone. And there's nothing he can do about it. He can't go to the cops because cops are going to say, hey, you're outside the judicial system. There's nothing we can do for you. As a matter of fact, when he walks out the door, some people start taking pot shots at him. And again, there's nothing he can call upon. So what he does is he hides in a corner somewhere behind some barrel, waits till it gets dark, and goes back to the police and turns himself in. Where was the need for a coercive sentence? Where was the need for a coercive jury? Where was the need for any kind of a coercive court system at all? This is what goes on in the novel, Atlas Snubbed. It's all pretty cool. You ought to read it. I wrote it. I'm the author. I should know. I call it my platform novel from my 2018 race for governor of Pennsylvania because there's a lot of ideas in there that we can implement. I'm not sure that Pennsylvania is ready for voluntary sentencing, but certainly we're ready for the separation of society and state. Like the commercial says, the novel's available at all online bookstores or at atlassnubbed.com. Read it there, and I'd love to hear your opinion of it if you do. So I think it's going to just about wrap it up for the them portion of the show. My thanks go to nobody for appearing on the Pennsylvania Project today. My thanks to Toastmasters for giving me the ability to fill in the time on the show. I hope at least somewhat entertainingly. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, I'll be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw. Fascism in Pennsylvania. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Meh. Could be better. Why? What's the matter? I just found a great job, but I can't take it. Why not? They want me to go as a 1099 contractor. So? So what about all the taxes? 
federal taxes, state taxes, this tax, that tax. I have better things to do than figuring out the tax laws and filling out all those forms. I'm a libertarian, remember? Well, then you need Amendment 16. Hey, it's the damn 16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place. (laughs) No, no, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them, and when your client pays them, they pay you, minus all required state and federal taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an accountant do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I, I mean, come April 15th. And they take care of all the taxes, all the forms? Yep. And they can pass along certain tax breaks, too. Sounds perfect. Where do I find them? On the web, of course, at amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. That's amendment-s-i-x-t-e-e-n.com. One call does it all. You've been a registered libertarian for years. Vote for libertarians even longer. And live by libertarian principles all your life. Now it's time to take the next step and become a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. Keep abreast of the march toward liberty in Pennsylvania. Take an active role in making it happen. Maybe even consider running for local political office yourself. It all starts with becoming a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. It's easy, fast, and only $20 a year. So visit lppa.org to sign up today. That's L. PPA.org. Do it today. A freer future is waiting. Hey, Ken Crosshaw here again, and welcome to the me portion of episode 17 of the Pennsylvania Project, my favorite part, where I get to rant about something that really sticks in my craw. As I mentioned earlier, today's rant is inspired by a question that came in from Mark Nelson. We read it earlier. He wanted me to issue a strong statement condemning fascism. That sounds like a no-brainer, but when I thought about it, it turns out it has more holes in it than Albert Hall. So let's start at the top. What is fascism? I did a little research on that, and I found out that the word was first used by no less a terrible person than Benito Mussolini back in 1915. He used the term for his political party. And let me give a quote from him, how he described it. Quote, The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. Thus understood, fascism is totalitarian, and the fascist state is a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values which interprets, develops, and potentiates the whole purpose of life of a people. Everything is in the state. Nothing is against the state. Nothing is outside of the state, unquote. Pretty blunt, right? Sounds like a real bad guy. I like FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, president back during World War II. He agreed with it, but he agreed with it with many, many, many fewer words, just as bluntly, though. He said, quote, fascism is the ownership of government by an individual, by a group, or by any other controlling private power. That's a lot easier to understand. It's missing a lot of the rhetoric, but it's pretty straightforward. You know, both those interpretations might have been correct in their day, but, you know, today people don't use those words, use the word fascism that way. It seems like every time you turn around, somebody's calling somebody else a fascist. Democrats call Republican fascists. Republicans call Democrats fascists. And the anti-fascist groups calling themselves Antifa, which is short for anti-fascist, is a far-left group 
They use fascist techniques to get their points across. Good grief. Brings to mind that quote from George Orwell, who's another good guy, famous author from the dystopian novel 1984. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, and fascism is not fascism. Cut me a break. Now, George Orwell, he had his own definition of fascism. He said that the term has been used as a pejorative regarding varying movements across the far right of the political spectrum. But the word is almost entirely meaningless now, and almost any English person would accept bully as the synonym. Well, I would agree with Mr. Orwell, except for one key phrase when he said, the far right of the political spectrum. I can't help but wonder, what, what does he mean by that? Now, I checked, and Wikipedia has all sorts of far-right political organizations, including the white nationalists, no surprise. Tea Party movement, that surprised me. John Birch Society, kind of surprised me. Constitutional militias, I don't think so. Paleoconservatives, maybe. Patriot movement, definitely not. I'm in the patriot movement. Alt-right, well, maybe. But they had a whole bunch of them. But, pardon me, but there's no real commonality among these groups. They all go in different directions and they all do different things. And what about the far left? Like I mentioned, Antifa, who use the fascist techniques. They have more in common with some of those far right groups than the far right groups have among themselves. So the terms like far right, far left, and fascist, they all winding up being pretty much virtually meaningless and just a pejorative to throw in the face of somebody else. So I was wondering, why don't they fit the right-left spectrum? Well, the answer is because they can't. And the reason why they can't is because the political spectrum is not right-left. It's not a one-dimensional line. It's a little more complex than that. The first person to realize that was David Nolan, founder of the Libertarian Party, no less. He defined the political spectrum not as a left-right line, but as a two-dimensional diamond where it's got an angled grid on the inside you know, slanted left and right, like lines on a graph paper, it looks like. And the left side of the diamond, it measures degrees of personal freedom. And the right side of the diamond measures degrees of economic freedom. So you could determine an individual's political leanings by plotting their beliefs on that diamond. So specifically, if you know how much personal freedom they support, 0%, 100%, something in between, how much economic freedom they support, 0 100%, or something in between, you can find out where they stand. So people who support a high degree of personal freedom but low economic freedom, like liberals, they're over the left point of the diamond. And conversely, people who support a high degree of economic freedom but a low degree of personal freedom, like conservatives, they find themselves on the right point of the diamond. And if you draw a line from the left point to the right point, that's your classical definition of right and left. But what about all that space above it and below it, the top point and the bottom point? Opens up broad swaths. So who lives up there? Well, think about it. Who believes in economic freedom all the time and personal freedom all the time? Obviously the libertarians. So we're at the top of the diamond. But what about the ones at the bottom who deny personal freedom, deny economic freedom, like the fascists, like Benito? Well, there they are down the bottom of the diamond. So there you go. It's not a line with left and right. It's a diamond with four broad groups, politically speaking. The political left near the left point, the right near the right point, libertarians at the top, and those fascists at the bottom. So now we have a much better definition than what George Orwell had. Somebody who denies personal and economic freedom both. That said, 
what kind of fascists do we have here in Pennsylvania? Hmm. Do we have people who dictate prices, for example, economic dictation? For example, you always see those signs for cigarettes. Lowest prices allowed by law. They're all over the state. I see them everywhere. Well, I beg your pardon again. Who's the state to dictate the price of anything? Unless, of course, the state is a fascist state. Hmm. Well, you could make the argument that the state is using that vaguely defined police power again to stop people from doing things they don't like. Oh, cigarettes are bad for you, they'll say. Well, I don't know. To me, it doesn't make any sense what the bully tells me right before he beats me up. A bully's a bully. And it's not just things that they say are bad for you. What about the things they say are good for you? I'm thinking of that Pennsylvania organization known as the Milk Marketing Board. They set the price for milk. It's the same idea. It sounds just as fascist to me. And you know what? If you're not convinced, guess who makes up the majority of the members of the Milk Marketing Board? Farmers. The very people that they're trying to suppress, trying to set the prices on. Now, isn't that a, fa- a poster child for a fascist organization, a private group owning part of the government where the state is everything and the individual farmer is nothing? And oh, woe to you if you ignore the board. There's that police power again, wielded by bullies against any farmers who dare to sell milk at the wrong price. Tell me, tell me how the milk marketing board is not fascist. I don't understand. And there's all the others. The state exercises their vaguely defined police powers like, like making cannabis illegal. So much for the right to keep and bear plants. Or games of chance. Good luck with that one. Or running a beauty salon like I was talking about if you want to split hairs. Or kids selling lemonade on a street corner. They stop them from doing that. For God's sake. Cut me a break. Everywhere you turn, it seems there's another fascist organization in Pennsylvania to bully you. All with the power of the state. But the absolute worst in Pennsylvania that makes the milk marketing board look like a church social, the poster child's poster child. Can you guess who? The Pennsylvania Bar Association. As I mentioned in episodes 12, 13, and 16, attorneys own our justice system, quote-unquote justice. Lock, stock, and barrel, they own it. They've taken it away from the common man. That bar association is an exclusive club with its own strict membership rules, and woe to you if you ignore their diktats. Because if you're not a member, you're not allowed to practice law. You're not allowed to give legal advice. You're not allowed to represent others. You can't represent a corporation. You're not allowed to prepare legal documents. Cut me a break. You're not allowed to do a whole lot of things. And, and you know what happens if you try to do anything that the bar association has claimed their ownership over? They call it a criminal act. You can be fined, put on probation, thrown in jail, all for running your own life your own way. If the Bar Association is not a fascist organization, then tell me what is. And wait, you think that's bad? It gets worse. It keeps building. Because worst of all, those attorneys have written themselves into the Pennsylvania Constitution. I counted in 21 different places. The Bar Association isn't mentioned in our 1776 Constitution or the 1791 or the 1838 Constitution, but the 1874 Constitution right after the Civil War, it mentions them once. You'd need to be a member of the Bar in order to be on the Board of Pardons. That was the camel's nose poking under the tent because the next Constitution in 1968, suddenly the Bar Association is everywhere, 21 different places. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other thing. 
Looks to me like fascists have taken over the state. They've taken away our law. They've taken away our cannabis. They've taken away our milk. It's enough to make you vote libertarian, ain't it? Well, let me get back to Mark's original question, the one that got me started. He asked if I can make a strong statement against fascism. Well, Mark, there it is. And I think I've done more than making a strong statement. I pulled back the curtain and revealed the great and powerful wizard for the fascist humbug that he really is. For all the good that it'll do any of us, well, if you know a solution, let us know, because there's just a lot of fascists out there. Something needs to be changed. But what? On that sad note, that's going to wrap it up for Episode 17 of the Pennsylvania Project. If you have something to say, we'd love to hear from you. So contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com, and you can hear us there, too, as well as iTunes and other popular podcast providers. Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited, recorded live at the studios of WWDB Radio, broadcasting at 10 a.m. every Saturday at 8.60 a.m. in Philadelphia, and released as a podcast every Tuesday at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Our webmaster is Stephen Worley, marketing guru Connor Dragotis, featured Toastmaster narrator, Drexel University Toastmaster Eric Skogland, keyboard wizard in the background there, Joe the Pag, radio producer Brett Kronberger, executive producer Mark Pazako, and me, your caster, Ken Kralchuk. Thanks for joining us, and ask not what's more important than solving the problem correctly, it's solving the correct 